Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Yesterday's concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Media Network. Welcome concert goers, music fanatics, and deadheads. My name is Lance Ingram, and in this very special encore episode of Yesterday's Concert, I've turned the microphone over to you to share from your jam journals. Grab your earplugs as we hear four music fans recount their first Grateful Dead show. Ben Horowitz and my first... Dead show was November 20th, 1970, University of Rochester Palestra. It's a school gym. I was a freshman, and it's the school gym fits about 2,000 people. Well, this is the main thing I remember is that the Jefferson Airplane were playing downtown at the War Memorial, which is a hockey arena. It's about twice the size of the university gym, which is where we saw it. And I was originally planning to see the airplane because I was a huge airplane fan, didn't know the dead that well. The only songs I really knew were from working bands that Casey Jones, I was a big favorite, and Uncle John's band, and that whole album I was very familiar with. But yeah, listen to it now, realize not everyone there was a student like me who were just new to the band. Obviously, there were some people that really liked the dead. And so they play the opening bars of St. Stephen, the crowd goes wild. So clearly, they were, they were big uh, fans. But all my friends were saying, oh, you got to see the dead. They're, they're a great concert band. And I've seen the... I'd, I'd already seen the airplane, I liked them a lot, but and then they're saying, well, for the dead, you've got to get really stoned. So I made some preparations for that. And I went with some friends and uh, there's a whole bunch of us, we're all freshmen, we're kind of tight, the freshmen. So I think on the floor of the gym and there we were. There's no seats, I mean, there's bleachers on the side. It's a basketball arena, really, a small one. And and there are people on the, on the gym floor and it was almost like a, Naive, like a bounding, sitting around the campfire. I hear people clapping along to Uncle John's band. And these are all like 18-year-olds. I mean, I don't know in the more recent shows that people clap along, but they were clapping along. They're really having fun. You know, they're partying, they're dancing, but nobody's getting anyone's way. They were just very enthusiastic and moving around. You could, you didn't have to stay in one spot the whole time. You could move around. And it wasn't a problem. And the first band that came on was New Riders, The Purple Stage. I didn't know who they were. They didn't turn to introduce them. I didn't like them very much. <laughs> Jerry Garcia was playing pedal steel. And I was baffled. And my friend said, "That's there's a new ride. It's a purple sage. And he said, what's he doing? He that's Garcia. I'm like, that's God. He's playing pedal steel. I was thinking of the first time I saw in 1970, Pigpen was such a presence. When you saw him later, like in the late 70s and 80s, you'd have songs with Garcia's lead guitar, lead vocalist, and then some weird songs, Garcia weird. Well, then, that first time, there was Garcia songs, Weir songs, and Pigpen songs. And Pigpen's this really rough-looking guy with a big cowboy hat, gruff voice. And he was really good in certain bluesy songs. Um, so well, he did Good Love, and he sang the lead on that. And uh, it was just a whole different feeling of Garcia be playing these blues leads. And, you know, there were like three options. You had Weir and his rock songs, or his ballads, and Garcia and his sort of classic dead songs. Yeah, it was just a different different dynamic. But, but I remember really liking Good Lovin', and it, and I was so amazed they would play that because Good Lovin' was this like beloved top 40 hit from even before you had FM Rock, you had just the top 40, and certain songs really stood out that you loved, and that was one of them, this really fast thing by the Young Rascals. And 
they're playing this long version. It's like, you know, they're, they're turning it into an art form. It's like, so, but the thing that was most amazing about it, I just remember really liking it, that I went back to the archive and listened to it again. And I saw that it's, it's got this really long drum solo, the two drummers. And I remember really thinking back, I'm just brought back to that night. I remember really liking that drum solo, just sort of dancing to it and closing my eyes and moving around. And then thinking now, well, if I hadn't been so high, I might not have liked it that much, but I really liked it. The thing about that good loving is that a 22 minute good loving in the first set, that's not something they would have done later on, but they were just so free form then. And it, they, they could rock, they could jam. These, they were tired, they're like 28 years old. And they're absolute physical prime. And they could just jam out, they could rock, they could do it all. I guess I was halfway through the second set, I guess it was Norma Conan and Jack Cassidy came down. Jam was set in with them. And I was just so deliriously happy and into this. I went up on the stage, other people were right there on the stage. I was standing literally three feet away from Phil Lesh and Norma Conan. And Phil turns to Norma and says, this is a real utopian jam. I was there for the utopian jam. The, the rumor that was in the college newspaper the next day, I guess Jack played, but he said Cassie didn't play that much because Phil Lesh wouldn't give him his bass. <laughs> but anyway, I remember looking up at the clock and well, this is in the school gym. When they finally stopped playing the very last song and they said good night, nobody asked for more. Nobody yelled, more, more, more. It was so late, they just people, you know, respectfully applauded and left. I looked at the clock, 3.40 a.m., I swear. Because you know, here it's, it's Friday night, you're on a college campus, there's no curfew. You know, I've been to concerts before, but this is the whole new dimension of music, concert going. The following year, they came back to Rochester and they played in the gym again in the fall of 71. I went to that and that was that was kind of, I mean, they, they played really well. It was kind of fiasco. Everyone so had loved the first show so much. They all feel we really have to get really, really high. People did too much drugs. There were people go to the infirmary. It was it was a mess. You know, they were just the expectations were so high that it, I don't think they ever played there again after that. You know, I'd been to a bunch of concerts. I'd seen the airplane, seen the birds, but never anything that was so free form. Nothing even like that. They, they, they get up, they play their songs, they do a good job. This was just so wild and it was just so great. And the only other show I could really compare this to in my entire life. First time I saw Bruce Springsteen in the E Street Band, the similarity is they both do these really long shows. They're totally into it. And the fans are really getting tapes and saying, well, this version of this song's better than this. And wow, they only did this one time at this show. And very much, it was just like, they both give their all and have really good concerts. And uh, I saw Bruce for the first time at a, in the New York at the Palladium. It's a theater, you know, this is in 76, between Born and Run and Darkest. And he was young. Again, he was young. He was like in his late 20s. And he had this credible energy, which, you know, wasn't there wasn't this jamming, but they're playing all these songs. It's really. So, I mean, it's the only show I could even compare it to. But the thing I remember the best after that was spring of 73. You know, spring break, some people like to go to Jamaica. Or but they were touring the East Coast. I had a two-week spring break, and I saw the dead four times during the 73. That's when they're, they're debuting the songs from... Uh, Wake of the Flood, you're hearing Road Jimmy, and Here Comes Sunshine. I remember I, well, I feel so fortunate to have seen them. And they're such a, it was such a creative period. You look, 1969, they recorded Axe and Live Dead. 70, they recorded Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. And they're, 
I mean, what an incredibly creative period. This is like the height of their creativity, I'd say, for their entire life. And I was actually right there when it was happening. Hi there. I'm uh, My name's Claire Ray Randall. I saw the dead at the Empire Pool Wembley on the Saturday night, the night when they played the uh, Dark Star, which was very well uh, circulated over many years. So that was the first time I saw them. And then I saw them twice more at the Lyceum. The point I'd been getting into the dead seriously for about a year. I've been introduced to the dead with Jerry on um, Deja Vu, of course. Then American Beauty, Live Dead, first album. And of course, the uh, superb Skull and Roses album that my uh, brother and I got our sweaty little hands on just before Christmas. It was just such a build-up over, you know, two or three years. And the legendary kind of stories about the dead and the counterculture that we were kind of part of. I mean, I was at the young end of it and my um, brother probably shouldn't have introduced me to a lot of it, but uh, um, although a lot of people, you know, they were into, you know, it was like Led Zeppelin and Floyd obviously were huge at the time as well. But I, I suppose the dead, they just seemed to capture the pure, complete, quintessential nature of that whole music adventure that had come out of the West Coast over the previous you know, five or six years. It seemed a bit cold to start with because it's a huge auditorium. At the time, it was the largest auditorium in England and uh, it was only about half full. I mean, it was only sold. It was only meant to be half full. So there was about, I think it was probably in the region of about five or six thousand uh, deadheads uh, in the audience. And uh, I don't think the sound system was really quite up to the size of the venue. However, when they got to Cumberland Blues, about 20 minutes into the first set, suddenly, I don't know whether they turned the volume up or whether they just got into the groove, but suddenly the energy started and it really kicked off from there on. And then very shortly into the second set, it went into the uh, the Dark Star, which well, we were very fortunate to actually have the... Um, Glastonbury dedicated Revelations album which came out a couple of years later and we were able to listen to that one and it became known as the Glastonbury Dark Star for everybody here in England um, particularly those of us who had the good fortune to see the show. The Lyceum came up and we were really pleased to hear about that. Now I, uh, I had to get permission to go out from boarding school with my uh, brother and uh, a teacher took us we went to see the Lyceum on my 17th birthday, which was an absolutely wonderful experience to have. And then there was this marvellous moment at about, I think it was about a quarter to midnight at the end of the first set, when uh, Bobby came to the uh, front of the stage and said, well, this is where we're going to take a, uh, a break. But we know that the ticket said 7pm till midnight, but we don't suppose you'll mind if we play on a little bit more. And uh, my poor old teacher from the school was left fuming outside waiting to pick us up because, of course, we weren't going to abandon the dead um, second set opening night. Um, the, well, I'll just say the sound at the Lyceum, I mean, was absolutely super. I'd never heard anything like it. I'd never really seen a good big concert. And it's a very small venue. Uh, it's like a kind of music hall, um, Victorian. It's very, very plush. And uh, they'd taken the seats out. We were all just sitting on the floor. And uh, the acoustics are very nice, of course, as well, because there's lots of soft furnishings and curtains. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, so that was a marvelous evening, but that was I'd got um, I'd got uh, kind of leave to go out and see it because it was my birthday. But I uh, the next two evenings I just was tortured. I was thinking the dead are up there at the Lyceum. Um, I was only 60 miles away on the south coast. So on the, uh, I think it was a Friday night, the 26th, I couldn't resist it anymore. So I bunked out of school and I took every single penny I had and I went to the West End, to the Strand. I tried to get a ticket. I didn't have a ticket. I only had enough ticket, enough money for a train fare and the five pound ticket, which was quite expensive in those days. I went to the pub and everybody, oh, you know, no, no, no tickets here. We're all just ready to go in and everything. So I, I was just in my last absolute desperate moment. I went up to the front of the um, theatre and there was this uh, chap who looked like a classic kind of uh, English uh, spiv with a pencil moustache um, with a handful of tickets. And he was just kind of waving them around. Tickets, anybody? And I said, oh, I suppose you want to charge double the price. He said, no, no, cover price, five pounds. You can imagine, I was inside within seconds. I think it was just such a small, intimate venue. I, I mean, there was about eight or nine people between me and Jerry. I could see his fingers. I could see his fingers and the way he, they were moving. It was like they were like kind of electrified, I don't know what, you know, creatures moving across the uh, the, the fretboard. And, um, and the, the whole band there, it was just so intimate in the most fantastic sound system I'd ever heard. The presence of the sound, it was like three-dimensional. Then I came home and unfortunately, I caught the milk train home at about 4 a.m. I was back for breakfast at school and I wasn't missed. I looked back and in some ways, it seems to be kind of almost like the defining moment of my life, you know, going off and, uh, you know, seeing the dead at on a complete speculative movement that might have completely fallen through and has been disastrous, but it worked out perfectly. I mean, it was two years later, more than two years, when they came to Alexandra Palace. You know, when you're a teenager, two and a half years is quite a long time to wait. Me and my friends, we all, uh, someone lived quite near to Alexandra Palace. We were able to go to all three nights, which was absolutely uh, mind blowing. It was just extraordinary, um, but it's just kind of amazing after all these years, to think, you know, 50 years later, that it's become, it was just a, a kind of teenage impulse, really, at the time, but it's become a kind of legendary part of history. Um, so I'm just absolutely, you know, thrilled to be able to relive the experience with all the shows. You kind of look back and it's hard to pin down. It was just so exciting. And I suppose it was something that I felt was, you know, how when you're young, you're kind of looking for something that is you, you know, something that you can identify with, something that you really feel as part of you. And um, while all those other bands like Led Zeppelin and Floyd, they were great, but somehow there was a feeling about the dead, the community, there was more to it than just music. There was like the whole kind of cultural community behind it. And there it was before my very ears. My name is John Conroy. I'm from Santa Barbara, California. And my first Grateful Dead show was right here in Santa Barbara in 1974. I think it was May 25th at the University Campus Stadium. And along with, and I, I think it was Maria Muldar opened. Yeah. And um, 
Alden in the way. First of all, I was working for the concert committee that puts on the concerts at the university. So they had asked me to photograph the events leading up to, to the show itself, the show, and then actually I flew around in a helicopter to take pictures of the parking on campus and a couple shots of the overhead of the show as well. Actually, here's a good backstory to that. Uh, you know, they sent the crews to build the stage a couple days before they sent the wall of sound to get, to get put up. So I think there was, rather than two shows in a row or three shows in a row, they were like onesies and twosies. Um, so I was photographing the actual putting up of the wall of sound from when it was just nothing to when it was built back up. And as I'm photographing, I, I was sitting with a couple of people and I, I was in the back of the stadium photographing. I saw this guy walking from the stage with a tape measure down the middle of the floor. And, and he, I don't know what he was doing, I'm taking pictures. And he saw me and he came running up to me, grabbed me by the neck. He said, what are you photographing? I go, I was just, I'm working for the promoter here. I'm just photographing the, the setup of the event. He goes, give me that film. So I had two cameras. So I gave him the other camera and he took the film. And he left and my friend said, do you know who that was? And I go, no, that was Osley Stanley. <laughs> so I have like two pictures of Osley Stanley. <laughs> Back then he was uh, just out on parole from his prison experience. And I don't think he was allowed to be with the band. And that's why he was all upset. And I heard after that that he didn't like being photographed anyways. Here's another little story. Jerry was apparently uh, having issues with his throat, his voice that day. And they traveled with a doctor, Dr. Brown, who was, <laughs> and they actually sent to the local pharmacy a script for liquid murk cocaine for his throat. My friend who, who I worked with at the university, who was the, he was the head guy at the concert committee, he had a vial that was left in the trailer afterwards, a prescription bottle that, that had Jer Jerome Garcia, one ounce of, or one milligram of Merck liquid cocaine for use on his throat. And he kept that for all these years. I think he sold it to a memorabilia thing at, at a fairly well a few years back. My first experience was that was the first time I ever heard the Grateful Dead. But um, I, didn't, I didn't remember his voice being bad at all but again i had nothing to compare it to and when i did hear them i thought it sounds to me like they're doing a sound check you know that long drawn out solos it, it just didn't sound like it was way too long to be a song so that was me getting on the bus you know that show but i really didn't start to appreciate them until after that after that time period uh, all of the people that worked on that show myself included got invited to the Hollywood Bowl, I think it was about a week later, to see them there. So I got to actually sit and watch and listen to the whole show at that point. And that's when I got really hooked. But uh, I was completely enthralled in the music. Started understanding what it was all about. And that that's what they did, you know. They didn't play three-minute songs. They went off in 15 minutes and then came back to the same song. Where were they? Oh, that song. <laughs> I still do that today, you know. Well, I mean, the... I'd looked at the set list earlier and it, it's it's a typical set list for I mean, what they even do today. You know, it's, uh, yeah, except I never see them really start out with US Blues in the first set. And that's what they opened with. I really liked 
uh, the Mexicali Blues deal, Stra Jack Straw. That was a great segment in the very in the opening set. And then you know, I mean, it's brown-eyed woman, me and my uncle, it's El Paso. So they got the uh, Texas trilogy in there. China Cat, I know you're writer. I don't know if they did it back to back like they do today, or was it two separate songs? I mean, going all the way back to '74, they were doing that then. That's crazy, you know. That they all, they put those two songs together. But you know, you like I said, you look at that set list, and it's the same stuff that they they do today. There's standards, you know. Wharf Rat, Truckin', Tennessee Jed, Ship of Fools, Sugar, Sugar Mag. You know, it's like it's like stuff, and and that's what I think it is. It's it's the music that and and that those lyrics, those Hunter lyrics and the Garcia songs that have carried this band on like this and will continue to it in all different forms. I think we're not done with with the different people that are going to be in this band. And I, you know, I knew from that first taste of it that it was a whole experience. It wasn't just a concert. It was this whole experience. The people, the you know, the the crafts being sold and the art being sold out on the streets and Shakedown Street. There was even a Shakedown Street back then. I mean, I was amazed by the wall of sound. That was the wall of sound. Why isn't it like 142 speakers or something? Two or three sides decks on this side and then a great big overhead and then some more on the other side and it was so crystal clear the the vocals and the instruments it was it was just it was mind-boggling how clear it was from anywhere you were in the in the stadium it was it was just perfect i probably saw maybe the most eight ten shows of uh grateful dead i actually at one in the 80s eight no it was 90 91 I was in New York for some business meetings and we had an event at the Tower Theater, I think it was called at Madison Square Garden, or the Felt Forum. It was inside Madison Square Gardens and our event was there. And when we got out of the cab and started walking into the event, there was everybody on the streets like, what needle? It's like, what is this? The dead are playing here? So I said, how can I get in? And they go, it's sold out. So during the break from the event that I was at, I was talking to this security guard and he goes, well, you're in the felt forum. Just get in the elevator and tell them to leave you off at the fifth floor. It's like they opened the, open it at the fifth floor and we're at, I'm in the middle of the show. So I stayed there the rest of the night. That was fun. But I saw something had popped up on, I think, the dead.net website that did anybody have any pictures from 74? They were looking for them. And I went, oh, really? So I got, I, and I think I had missed the time period that they had put the thing up. And I contacted somebody down at Rhino Records and sent a couple and they went, oh, we're gonna send this to somebody else. <laughs> so then Dave Lemieux called me and, and we got together and I've been kind of a working relationship with him ever since. And uh, they also used some of those same shots from Legion of Mary on uh, Garcia live sets that they do now too as well like volume three was one and it's it's not the first band that I've that's done you know I've I've kind of dabbled in that industry my whole career but it was certainly an honor to be uh, to be with that be put on something with that band because of my the way I like to be around them you know <laughs> Okay, my name is Michelle, and my first Dead show was Barton Hall, Cornell, May 8th, 77. 
I remember the events far more than I remember the show. I'd been listening to The Dead since about 71, but I was listening to a lot of other bands and I went to a lot of concerts and I just never caught The Dead until my friend from childhood who was attending Cornell called me and said, get on a Trailways bus, The Dead are playing here. I went to school in a really isolated rural town and I didn't have a car. And so I didn't get out of that immediate Genesee, Rochester, New York area very much. And I took a five hour bus ride to go see my friend at her school, ate at the famous Moosewood restaurant. You know, Cornell's a pretty hip place and, uh, you know, the lake is beautiful. And so, yeah, it was, it was like a vacation escape from school, basically finals week. You know, I stayed overnight. I took the bus back on Sunday. I actually met a boy on the bus who had been to the show, and we talked Grateful Dead the whole ride back. And then it was finals week. You know, and when I when I look back and I wonder why didn't I go to the rest of those epic shows, I was a goody goody college student, and it was finals week. <laughs> so what I remember is that it was raining it had been a nice day and it started to rain and there was a mob of people waiting outside and barton hall has kind of like cathedral steps they start out wide and then they get narrowed down to the double doors we were so cold and wet that when they opened the doors there was a bit of a stampede to get in my friend andy she's about 4'11 and i almost lost her shoulder to shoulder with strangers and knowing she was down below and could get trampled. But we got in and, um, you know, it's a fairly small arena, volleyball arena, not a, not a basketball place. And we found some seats along the wall and I was, I was excited to see the band, but like I said, a lot of other concerts, you know, I'd been seeing Yes and Pink Floyd and, you know, people who put on these big extravagant light shows and all and the dead were so like down to earth and just just there one of the things i remember again non-musical is that i had had you know the schoolgirl crush on bob weir well he had a beard and i didn't like that you know as a 19 year old <laughs> i was looking for my like pop star bobby but uh, Donna, on the other hand, I had my first girl crush. I thought she was so beautiful and mesmerizing on stage. And I remember like, you know, totally enjoying the music, but I had no idea it would be the standout that it was. Um, my level at that point was either I recognized songs from Working Man's American Beauty in Europe 72, or I didn't. So walking out, as you've probably heard, it was snowing, Mother's Day, you know, May 8th, well, May 9th by then. So it just added this magical air to it. I had to walk to my friend's rental house, you know, student housing. Three or four blocks, we were walking along like arm in arm, still singing songs. And it made the whole night feel really magical, way better than getting in a car and you know, driving home, you know, was out there sort of dancing in the snow. But at Cornell, it was more of just the novelty of going to my friend's college town and seeing a concert. 
So I don't remember any standout songs. That came later for me. Um, I saw The Dead in Rochester in November of 77. And for some reason, The Dire Wolf just like blew me out of my seat. And I was never the same again. I'd seen The Dead a handful more times by about 81 or two. And I'd moved out west. And I started collecting tapes. And so the early tapes that people had in those days were like Great American Music Hall and Polly Pavilion. There were just a few, you know, 50 or whatever in circulation. And I started asking folks, I had moved to Arizona by then. I was asking people, if you ever see a tape from Cornell, let me know. And I was asking that, you know, on and off to, to different deadheads from about 81 to 86. And when the, you know, the Betty Cantor storage unit was auctioned off and all those Betty boards were released, I had about 10 friends in three different states call me and say, I can get you that tape. And then when I heard that tape, it was something special. It was, at the time, the best recording I'd ever heard and in retrospect, the best show. And there are so many people now who say, hey, it's not their best show. It wasn't even the best show that week. You know, I think it's still the best Scarlet Fire ever. The, the Phil bass line sounds to me like he's waving sheet metal up and down going, whoop, whoop. But historically, it was the tape that was the best. You know, I wasn't the kind of person who was going to blow off college and just go road tripping with some, you know, casual acquaintance. So I finished school. I saw them in Rochester again in 78. And that, that's it for my East Coast shows. I moved out to Arizona and now Portland, Oregon. And all the rest of my shows, which is only about 65 well, only compared to people I know who did tour and have 300 shows. But, you know, 60, 65, especially once we started bringing kids. I mean, there was a whole scene on the West Coast of people with toddlers and babies and little kids all camped out behind the soundboard, blowing bubbles and chasing balloons. And that was a whole different level of dead show. Uh, we had good times. It's hard to believe it's 45 years ago, you know. I'm Lance Ingram, and this is Yesterday's Concert. Thanks for tuning in to another show. Sources and more information on today's show are available on our website, yesterdaysconcert.com. While you're there, check out some old episodes, or connect with us on Twitter, at ConcertPod, or on Instagram, at Yesterday's Concert. And until next time, Take care of your shoes.